Okay, so this evening I, I want to talk about five psychological qualities or patterns that are deeply implicated in the creation and the recreation of distress. So understanding these patterns clearly has then quite profound implications in bringing distress to an end. Now, these patterns are experienced very personally, but in reality, they are very universal human patterns. They often go under the name of being the five hindrances. Fortunately, this is quite a short list, so it's easy to remember. I think more accurately, these are the patterns that obscure our capacity to see things clearly. Now, those of you who've been in meditation practice for a while, um, you'll be both very familiar with these patterns, and you're probably overly familiar with hearing them being talked about. So if any of you find yourself, any of you old yogis here, find yourself at this point with your eyes glazing over, thinking, I know this, I would just encourage you to reflect that if you still experience any of these obscurations, that we might want to look at the gap between knowing something and truly understanding it. Huh? But I want to set a little bit of background for, for this evening's talk. I think most of us would acknowledge that throughout our lives, we, we have longings, we have aspirations, we have values, both articulated and unspoken, that very much guide our preferences, our actions, our choices, the directions, the kind of life we want to lead. Now, some of these are personal, and yet if we speak about them, we see they're also very universal longings and aspirations. And in, in the Buddha's teaching, these are the, the, the quality of longing, the quality of aspirations that are called kusala, or wholesome desire. The longing for happiness, the longing for safety, the longing to live a fulfilled, a creative, an embodied life, the longing for freedom, the longing to develop metta and compassion. These are all wholesome desires. You know, I think sometimes you, you hear kind of nuances in the Buddhist teaching where, you know, desire has got this sort of blanket ban you know, that any desire is surely a sign of, of ignorance and, uh, you know, craving and all the rest of it. But it's not so. Of course, desire is a necessary motivating force in our life. It's what got you here. It's what got you to live the life you're leading. So what the Buddha really asked us to distinguish is, is, is the difference between the desires that are truly wholesome, that really lead um, 
to depth, to awakening, to a greater sense of intimacy with life, to kindness, to care, and to the end of suffering, and also to be able to discern in ourselves the desires in ourselves that are less wholesome and that lead away from freedom. We hope to develop uh, the emotional and psychological resilience and maturity that will allow us to navigate our way through life without floundering and without being overwhelmed. We, we hope to develop the emotional and psychological maturity that allows us both to fully appreciate and delight in the lovely that is part of all of our lives, and yet also have the maturity and the resourcefulness to meet the, advers the, the afflictions, the difficulties, the challenges, with compassion and with understanding. Now, at times, these longings that we have are realized and fulfilled, and, and we feel in those moments often uh, that we live a very embodied life somehow. And at other moments, uh, we're, we're kind of mystified sometimes, I think, when we find ourselves living a life that doesn't feel to be the life we've chosen. Hmm? Or living in a mind that doesn't really feel like the mind we've chosen. When, when we live with this sort of disappointment of ending up places far from where we want to be, and, and we have a kind of bewilderment of thinking, well, how did I end up there? You know, how did I end up there? I mean, have you ever found yourself coming out of some, you know, huge obsessive storm or, you know, preoccupation bout or aversion binge, you know, and kind of got spit out the other end? And you sort of look back, you think, well, how did that happen? You know, how did that happen? How, how did I end up there? Now, it's interesting how much in this practice we're actually invited really to look at these places of dissonance, I would call it. The dissonance places. The, the places where there's a gap between everything we long for and value and how we find ourselves living at times that feels very separate and very apart and um, from those longings. So we, I think dissonance is, is a kind of an uncomfortable area to talk about. It's sort of an uncomfortable question, isn't it? To look at dissonance. Um, it's, it's a very important question to examine dissonance, because dissonance is where we feel most disappointed with ourselves. Hmm? Dissonance, you know, feels like the moments when we kind of feel that we let ourselves down in some way. You know, if you think about it, you know, you, you, you know, you, you, we, we long to have a, an emotional life of clarity and calm and, and, and compassion. And, and too often then we, we find ourselves running into these places of confusion and reactivity and impulsiveness. You know, most of us probably long to live a life of kindness and compassion. And yet 
we have the moments when anxiety and judgment and aversion and ill will arise and get expressed in our, our speech. We probably long to live a peaceful life, and yet agitation and discontent can be really familiar visitors. And in this gap, this dissonance between our longings and aspirations and our felt realities, I would suggest that you know this is where we begin to practice. It's where we begin to investigate. It's where we begin to inquire about what it is within ourselves that is sabotaging our deepest intentions. Now, when we do meet dissonance, you know, this, this, get these gaps in our lives, and, and I, I mentioned this in a, a group today, you know, that mindfulness teachers are particularly prone to a hyper-alertness to dissonance. It's very uncomfortable. You know, people tell me who are teaching, you know, they're, they're going out and they're telling their students the importance of practicing every day, but can hardly find their own way to a cushion, you know. Or they're, they're telling their students, you know, the, the, the need to meet the difficult without aversion and go home and snap at their spouses. And, you know, it's, it's uncomfortable, you know, it's uncomfortable. And mindfulness teachers have a special opportunity to actually be uncomfortable in dissonance. Because they have an extra, an extra layer of expectation, don't we? You know, I should be better than this. You know, I should be practicing what I tell other people to practice. So it's an important question, but it's also important to question that dissonance can be met with a whole range of reactions, and some of them are helpful, and some of them are not. And I think often our most frequent reaction to dissonance is, is self-judgment and blame and shame. That somehow I'm a failure, I'm a fraud. You know, I should hang up my, you know, take my shingle in, you know, I can't be, you know, i got to resign, I can't do this, you know. This is the most common reaction. Or we try to force ourselves and our lives into something that resembles the self-imposed expectations that we have of ourselves. But I think there's a better response, quite frankly. <laughs> and I think that response is really important for all of us, and it's to question what it is that really obscures our hearts and minds' capacity for clarity and stillness and creativity. What is it that sabotages our deepest intentions? What is it that makes us forgetful? What is it that makes us forgetful? Now, these are really important questions, you know, and it was, it's a, it, it, they are questions that were as important 2,500 years ago in the time of the Buddha as they are today. You know, there's a certain, there's a certain universality in the human mind, you know, that's not bound to, to time or to, or to culture. Now, I think the, the Buddha recognized, um, I think just as much as we recognize, that there's a certain tension in waking up, isn't there? 
I mean, it, it would be wonderful, you know, if we all just kind of sat down on cushions, went into our walking paths and said, you know, I'm going to be awake and everything cooperated, you know, and, you know, we just set our feet in the stream and swam along. It's not like that, is it? There is a tension in waking up, and I think, I think we need to look at this tension, because on one side, you know, and you do this every sitting and every walking, you know, we, we kind of set the intention to be present, to be clear. I mean, does anybody come into this room and say, oh, you know, it's a really good hour to be depressed, I think, <laughs> just really good hour to obsess. But nobody does that. Nobody would, you know, consciously inflict that on themselves, would they? So we have these intentions that, that we set, that we bring into our lives, our aspirations to be clear, to be compassionate, wakeful. And those intentions are sitting side by side with a world of historical emotional habits. I mean, sometimes these are generational emotional habits, by the way. You know, it's even hard to find their beginning. So we have this sense of aspiration, intention, and we have these repetitive psychological emotional habits and impulses. Now, what often seems to happen is that these impulses and habits kind of hijack or overwhelm the intentions. So we could view this tension of waking up as being something of a negative tension. But actually, I think that from the perspective of this teaching, this, this is actually a creative tension. This is where we practice. This is where we look carefully at what, we're, what is being fed. This is where we look carefully at kind of what is creating our world of the moment what actually is being fed and nourished or cultivated or what is just being habitually reacted. This is actually a creative tension. It's the classroom, and it's where every path of mindfulness begins, by the way. So what we see is, is that our mind is involved in an ongoing process of interfacing with, responding to, interpreting, and reacting to the world around us and the world within us. So some of those responses are really quite skillful and helpful and clear. They're rooted in understanding, rooted in compassion. And some of our reactions are patterns of impulse and patterns of confusion and reactivity that are unfelt helpful. And John last night was re referring to this concept of dukkha, you know, and the kind of dukkha that is kind of like created and recreated through confusion of reactivity moment to moment. So the Buddha looked very clearly. The Buddha was really concerned with us understanding what it is that obscures our mind's capacity for clarity. What it is that obscures our capacity to sustain intention. What it is that really clouds almost the mind and leads to forgetfulness. So this is very explicitly spoken about in Buddhist psychology. 
as in, it is such an important domain of our experience to understand. I, I think some of us have never really, really figured out, and it's an ongoing conversation, about why this is not spoken about more explicitly in MBIs. Um, you know, it seems it's not like people in mindfulness trainings and courses don't experience these patterns. They certainly do. And you know, my experience is that when we speak about these patterns, you know, there's a certain relief because when you're just in the midst of them on your own, you know, you take it so personally. You know, I must be the only one who does this, you know. And yet somehow the naming of these patterns, I find, is often a huge relief to people. Because there's a sense of, oh, yeah, this is not so personal. This is what a mind does when it's kind of forgetful and confused. You know, it gets caught in these patterns. So sometimes the, these, these patterns, I, I mean, hindrances are not really a good word, except they do hinder our capacity to really fulfill the aspirations we hold dear. But it's more, more that these are a kind of, uh, uh, they obscure, they distort, they confuse. Okay, so I'm going to go through the, the list, the, the short list, and um, it's an easy one to remember, but only as, as long as you're clear, otherwise we forget very quickly. <laughs> we probably repeat the list a few times. So let, let's just think about them, and then I want to go into each of them. Uh, sensual craving. Craving for sensual pleasure. It's a simple one, doesn't sound too bad, does it? Uh, ill will, aversion. Sleepiness and dullness. Restlessness and worry, and skeptical doubt. Now, although we can speak about these patterns individually, in fact, they're very, very interwoven processes. I think sometimes we find that we specialize. You know, I'm a much more specialist worrier than I am, say, a sleepiness and drowsiness type. You know, but actually, we, we see no. Please, nobody only has one of these. These are interwoven processes that actually affect each other. I'll give you a very simple example, you know, in uh, lunch times on retreats. You know, in a day of few events, it's the event. Now, for some people, this is just an example, by the way, you'll do your event somewhere else, but okay, so lunchtime. It, maybe I'm a little bit of a worrier, you know. Maybe I think food's going to run out, you know. So I think about, hmm, you know, I kind of worry about that. I think about that a bit. I worry about it. Um, maybe I ought to miss the mindful movement session because then I could get to the front of the line. <laughs> there we've got restlessness and worry. But then, but then I think, oh, well, if I get to the front of the line... What are people going to think about me? They're going to see me. And, th and then I think, oh, but I really like the mindful movement. It feels really good. You know, it would be a pity to miss that, you know, craving for sensual pleasure. Then I get, to the, I, decide, I get to the line, and I've made all my plans and strategies. I've skipped the mindful movement. I'm going to be first in the line, but I'm not. Where did they come from? <laughs> <laughs> it's 
Like all these people suddenly appear. I'm not in the front of the line. So I'm standing in the line. I see these people in front of me, and I feel the, this craving for sensual pleasure coming up. I feel some aversion for these people who got in front of me. Um, and then I notice how much they're taking, you know, and I, I feel you know, even more restlessness and worry. It's going to run out, you know. And then I, I th look, see what's going on in my mind, and I think, you know, then the doubt comes, you know, I, 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 or the aversion comes. I, I hate feeling this way. I hate being this kind of person. Then the doubt comes, you know, I'll never be a good meditator. You know, and it goes round and round, okay? This is a simple scenario of the interplay of these patterns. It's not a very happy place. It's not a very happy place. Um, now, when we look carefully at these five patterns, craving for sensual pleasure, aversion, restlessness and worry, sleepiness and dullness and doubt, we see that they are implicated in every single psychological and emotional storm that we experience. If you look at any psychological, emotional storm you experience, try to see if it is free of these five patterns. It would be hard to find one that is. Okay. They're certainly very predominant in states of depression, in states of anxiety, anger, jealousy. And we see these threads of these patterns run through it all. Now, it's easy to create kind of unhelpful attitudes to these patterns, particularly if you've been around this practice for a while. You sort of think, oh, well, I'll just get over these. You know, I just, I just wait till they go away then my meditation practice will really begin. Now, in, the, in Buddhist psychology, these, are not, these patterns are not something to be treated as a nuisance or something, an inconvenience or something to get rid of, but they're considered to be very deeply embedded emotional psychological habits that are asked to be understood because they are patterns that suffocate and indeed often deny wakefulness and, and insight and the kindness that is possible for us. I certainly find that the more I teach, the more I find myself speaking about these patterns. Because in a way, they, they are the practice in a way, you know? Understanding these patterns, transforming them, in a way really is the practice. Now, what we see is these patterns create and recreate distress cycles, but they also sabotage intentions. That's the, that's the most important part. And when intention is sabotaged, that's the setup for doubt and for feelings of impossibility and spiraling into depression and not feeling good enough. Now, it's, it's so important to see that. I mean, you see that in a walking period, perhaps, so clearly. You know, that you go out into a walking meditation and, uh, you know, we don't end up there by accident, quite frankly, do we? It takes some intention to get there. Have you noticed how difficult it is to sustain the intention of mindfulness through a whole walking period? And how these patterns come up? You know, like you start out pretty good, you know? Right, I'm on the case here, you know? <sighs> boring, you know, must be something more interesting to look at, you know, that person's got an interesting walking style, you know, maybe I'll try that one, you know, oh, this is so tiresome, you feel the aversion come up, you know, then you get squirmy, you know, oh, it must, 
how much longer? You know, how much longer? You know, you feel the restlessness. You feel like I, I'll never be able to do this. You know, the you, you just see this whole play of these factors in a single walking period. Never mind the rest of our life. Go out into the day, you know, with the intention to be a reasonably kind person in the world, you know, until someone annoys us or the train is late or we forgot our umbrella and it's raining, and the whole thing just seems to crumble sometimes. So, this is our challenge. What we're really asked to envisage, of course, is a way of being in which our lives and our hearts are no longer governed by patterns of reactivity. You know, and in Buddhist psychology, it's interesting because you've got these five kind of accessible psychological threads, you know, craving for sensual pleasure, aversion, restlessness and worry, sleepiness and dullness and doubt. You've got these kind of five accessible threads, and these are said to be the five uh, manifestations of greed, hatred, and delusion. And that greed, hatred, and delusion is said to be the three manifestations of the kind of core confusions of not knowing things as they actually are that really primarily causes distress. So you see this continuum. Hmm? You see, you see, in Buddhist psychology, you see this continuum. But these five threads, of course, are the ones that we can really touch and see and begin to practice with in some skillful, skillful ways. Okay, so... The Buddha used a number of different similes to, to kind of, uh, or teaching, teaching terms to, to really describe these. He, he says, a mind that's free of, of sensual craving is a mind that's, that is, is like a life that's freed of debt, of being in debt. He said, uh, to be free of aversion is like recovering from illness. You know, you sort of have that sense, because aversion is pretty painful. Fear aversion is like recovering from illness. To be free of sleepiness and dullness is like being released from a prison. Hmm? You ever notice with sleepiness and dullness how hard it feels to find a way out? How contracted and, and dull, dark it feels? He says to be free from restlessness and worry is like being freed from slavery. And to be free of doubt is like crossing an arid desert to safety. And he used other, other similes. He, 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 said, he likened it like this. He says, he says when you're governed by sensual, sensual craving, sensual desire, it's like looking into a, into a pool of water to see yourself, and the water is, is colored with dye. He says, when you're in the grip of aversion, it's like looking into a pool of water that is boiling and trying to see your reflection. It is when, it, when it's, it's sleepiness and dullness, it's like looking into a pool of water trying to see yourself, and the water's covered with algae. It is when it's restlessness and worry, it's like looking into that pool of water that's all kind of blown by these strong winds. And when in the grip of doubt, the water is just murky, and you can't see anything at all. So in mindfulness practice, the, these, these patterns are actually turned into objects of meditation. They turn into objects of meditation. We learn to look at them very directly as patterns rather than as personal definitions. That plays a very important shift. 
We start to look at them as objects of mindfulness. We, and, you know, in, in Buddhist psychology, there's a very, very specifically, uh, specific and explicitly stated antidote to these patterns. And these are called, you know, qualities of awakening. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, calmness, um, concentration, equanimity. This is very explicit in Buddhist psychology. These, these qualities, by the way, are very much woven into eight-week programs in a very, very implicit way that we don't always recognize, but they are there. Hmm? So... First, the first thing we need to do is to develop an emotional vocabulary, a vocabulary for these experiences. It's very important to be able to name them. That's the first step, isn't it, of turning something into a, 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 an object of investigation and curiosity, is to be able to have a vocabulary for them. Ah, aversion. What does aversion feel like? Ah, sensual craving. Ah, that's what that is. What does that feel like? How do I know it? Ah, sleepiness and dullness. How do I know that? How do I feel that? Where, where is that in the body? How, how is that influencing how I see? Ah, restless and worry. Ah, that's what that is. Hmm? Ah, skeptical doubt. Ah, I know that one. So you turn in these patterns into objects of mindfulness that can be examined, that can be investigated, that can indeed be befriended, but that we can be curious about. This is the first step in, in decentralizing, isn't it? It's the first step in non-identification, is, is to establish a relationship with what is being experienced in the mind. It's the first step of not taking it all so personally. So let's just look at the, this one of, of craving for sensual pleasure. Now, this is a very important distinction to make here. Because, you know, we are sensual beings and there is much that is delightful in this world. It's not a problem. You know, lovely sights, sounds, poetry, music, art, you know, delightful people, delightful moments. It's actually not a problem. You know, and I think sometimes with, you know, hardcore Buddhist meditators, uh, you know, they get a little, a little itch antsy around sensual delight, you know, they're convinced it's bound to turn into, you know, tanha, unquenchable thirst, you know, and get them into trouble. But actually, sensual delight is part of all of our lives, part of gladdening our hearts, brings spaciousness, makes it brings a smile to the heart. It's actually not a problem at all. And it's an important thread for us to cultivate, actually, here, you know, when sometimes things are quite difficult, you know, to learn to step outside and look at a tree, to listen to the sounds of the birds, you know, to see the sunshine on the leaves. You feel, you know, ah, this is a helpful ally in, in kind of gladdening the heart, in, in helping to cultivate some spaciousness. This is a not all grim work, you know. But the teaching about the craving for sensual pleasure is something a little bit different because, and it lives alongside, alongside often very closely, sensual delight. But something a little bit more toxic, actually. It's a pattern. And, you know, it, let's get, be quite honest about it. We want to be comfortable. We don't want to be uncomfortable. 
We want to feel good. We don't want to feel bad. Now, on some level, this is totally understandable, isn't it? And, you know, as human beings, we have a certain wiring that teaches us certainly to prefer, prefer the pleasant over the unpleasant. Totally understandable. But we see what happens with that. How are we, we create these fixed and rigid patterns of reactivity around the pleasant and the unpleasant. Hmm? We feel that we can only be happy in the midst of the pleasant. We feel that we cannot bear it in the midst of the unpleasant, and so we avoid. So we create these unhelpful patterns around the pleasant and the unpleasant. And we see this craving for sensual pleasure, sensory pleasure, how you know the, the wanting turns to insistence, the insistence turns to demand, the demand turns to need, and the need turns to belief system. My world will collapse if I am exposed to the difficult. You know, I remember once in, being in a supermarket, you know, and on a parallel aisle, there was a mother shopping with a little child, obviously, in, in her trolley, you know. And it started out as a little quiet voice, you know. Mommy, I want this. The voice got bigger. Mommy, I need this. And the voice got even bigger and more plaintive. Mommy, I have to have this. You know, with two aisles, within two aisles, there were tears. You know, and of course, we, we see this in small children. We get a lot more sophisticated as we get older. Um, but we see how much, you know, this, this craving for sensual pleasure is tied in with so many belief systems inwardly. And how, you know, our, our tolerance for discomfort and the unpleasant is often so low, and our demand for the pleasant is often so high. And so how we're always looking outside to the world of conditions to, to meet that, that demand and that fear of being dispossessed, of, of actually sometimes not feeling so great, or not having things go as we want. It's a kind of never-enough mind. Now, when sensual craving is pleasant, you will notice there's often a lot of na narrative, you know, and you've probably seen that here. And often, you know, it, it, here it gets more sophisticated, you know, because we're, we're not kind of in the supermarket. We're, you know, we're not in front of the TV, but we have thought. So being aware, certainly in Buddhist psychology, you know, the mind is one of the sense doors. So, you know, fantasy... Fantasy, you know, this moment's not quite right. Oh, I've got thought. I've got fantasy nobody knows. <laughs> you know, I could spend my whole 45 minutes in this most amazing fantasy about this perfect moment, you know, this ideal moment, this perfect relationship. I am thrilled to bits, and nobody knows. Have you even noticed that sometimes, you know, you sit with a, like an uncomfortable knee or uncomfortable back, and it, you, it's, it, you know, it's uncomfortable, and how the mind can flip into fantasy, and it's completely forgotten. That's amazing. That is amazing. The power of that impulse to take us away from what is. And this is what the craving for sensual pleasure actually is all about, isn't it? It takes us away from what is. It's comfort food for the mind. Hmm? 
whether it comes through the, the traditional sense doors or the sense door of the mind. Not, not in itself necessarily so terrible. Maybe we don't think that's so, ba- so bad. But we are completely under-resourced when lost in sensual craving. Completely under-resourced when it comes to actually meeting the difficult. Then we feel shattered. Now, it's interesting, when, when the Buddha speaks about these patterns, you know, he just doesn't leave you floundering and say, well, that's a problem, isn't it? Too bad. You know? He actually suggests antidotes. You know, one of the antidotes for this pattern of sensual craving is much more conscious cultivation of contentment. Conscious cultivation of contentment, that's, that's one of the antidotes. To be able, you know, in those impulsive moments of leaning forward into something better, getting away from what is, leaning forward into something more satisfied, to, to be able to pause and ask yourself what in this moment is genuinely lacking. But the other major antidote, I have to say, and this is a bit one, a bit more of a challenging one, um, is actually to cultivate the inner stillness, the inner collectedness, the inner calm, the inner peace, where happiness is inwardly generated. Without that genuine sense that, you know, our hearts have the capacity for inwardly generated sufficiency, joy, happiness, we're always going to be hostage to the world of conditions, trying to find something to provide us with what we feel to be lacking inwardly. It's why, you know, we talk so much about this path being a, you know, this is a training of the heart, this is a training of the mind, you know, not a punishment training, not, not something, you know, that's meant to be really hard work. It is a training in inwardly generated happiness, inwardly generated joy, because that is when we have a reasonable relationship to the world of both the delightful and the undelightful. Now, very, you know, if you look at the reverse side of the craving for sensual pleasure, which is to move towards and, and to get and to be close to, on the other side of this, of course, is this other pattern of ill will or aversion. Um, you know, the aversion, wanting what we don't have, rejecting what we do have, really just feeling we can't be with this. I hate this. I don't want it, you know. And there's a lot of things we have aversion for. You know, pretty much anything that we feel unable to accommodate. And it's such a powerful pattern, and there's really not enough time this evening to go into this pattern to give it the attention it deserves. But, you know, this is what mindfulness is actually concerned with. It's what metta is concerned with. Because I've never seen anybody in meditation practice or in contemporary mindfulness applications, I think the biggest shift I ever see anybody make is a shift from aversion to befriending. It's the most transformative shift. Whether the aversion is for our bodies, for our experience, for our life, for other people, for our thoughts, the biggest shift we make is from aversion to befriending. It's a liberating shift. It's a liberating shift. It's kind of the end of the battle. See, and, and it's the end of anxiety, it's the end of the fear. It's really our capacity to, to meet with some resilience and some maturity and some kindness 
everything that life brings to us. Now, this, this aversion, you know, this, this tendency towards aversion, sometimes it's directed outwardly, but it's an equal opportunity pattern. Gets directed inwardly. Self-criticism, self-blame, shame, guilt, uh, all of those things that we, we place upon ourselves, the impatience, the frustration, the comparing, the envy, all of this is the fabric, fabric of, of aversion. Part of it is fear. Part of it is very much fear-rooted. But what it does, what aversion does, is it creates the sense of the other. The other that we're in dispute with, that we're in argument with. Whether the other is another person, whether the other is an event in our life, or sometimes the other is created inwardly the body experience we can't accept, the pain, the illness, the chronic pain. Sometimes the other is created inwardly in terms of the emotion that we feel is unacceptable, you know, or the thoughts that are unwelcome. And as long as aversion is creating the other, it's locked both in a battle with, but in a union with the other. So it's a toxic, it's a toxic loop. It's a closed feedback loop very much affecting the body, very much affecting the mind. And one of the primary difficulties with this pattern is, of course, is the aversion we have towards aversion. <laughs> I don't want to be the person, who, kind of person who feels like this. You know, I don't want to be the kind of person who has these kind of thoughts. I don't want to be the kind of person who's so impatient and so jealous, you know. And I just don't want to be the person who's having this kind of experience. So we have another layer set in there. Now, a part of practice, or one of the effects of mindfulness, of course, is, is raising, actually, our level of resilience, equanimity, spaciousness, stability. So our capacity to meet the uncomfortable without cascading into cycles of aversion is strengthened. Because it is optional, I would mention. It is, aversion is optional. So we learn to develop that resilience, often just through you know, ever-increasing moments of intimacy with the difficult. I mean, you see that in the practice here, don't you? You know, you have that, that twinge in your back. You know, you learn to be a little bit intimate with it, don't you? You learn to turn your attention towards it. You learn to be curious about it. You're learning to, to forge a relationship rather than an argument. Hmm? And, and this, is, this is the training of mindfulness. It's, it's through intimacy to develop resilience through intimacy to develop a sense of balance, to, through intimacy to develop a quality of friendliness um, and, and stability, where, where we don't just live in fear of being overwhelmed by the uncomfortable, the difficult, the painful. And of course, the other part of really learning to meet a version very different, differently is through metta, the metta that John introduced today. You know, metta is not just concerned with different uh, domains of human relationship. Metta is concerned with every single moment of aversion. 
and aversion is not confined to human relationship. There are plenty of events and experiences in our life where aversion arises. And this is the place of metta. Not the time to say, may my benefactor be happy, but actually, may I be, live with ease and kindness in the midst of this pain. May I be peaceful in the midst of this difficulty. To very much turn metta into, into a verb, a relational verb, with events and experiences. Now, the next of these patterns is the sleepiness and dullness. You know, um, sleepiness and drowsiness. It's a big spectrum experience. You know, it ranges from, uh, you know, and please be aware we're not talking about honest fatigue here. You know, sometimes people arrive on retreats and they are just worn out, you know. First couple of days, takes some time to rest and to really recover and restore. Then you don't feel so bright in these moments. What we're talking about here is something different. It's a pattern of dissociation. Huh? And sleepiness and dullness in the sense is does exactly that. It numbs experience. It numbs experience. And, you know, it's a, it's a big spectrum experience, you know, because it ranges from the, you know, when you see people doing this in the meditation hall, you know, and they're not engaged in some, you know, exotic Buddhist ritual. They're, they're falling asleep, you know, and it's quite astonishing to discover you can sleep in a full lotus position, you know, never would have believed it possible. But that's the most extreme, but sneak, it's much sneakier than that. It's much sneakier than that, because it's often just this kind of fog sort of dreaminess. It's kind of like you're looking at experience through, through a sort of gl a slightly distorted glass. You're kind of removed. You're kind of remote. It's, it's a lack of brightness. And, you know, sleepiness and dullness is probably the most common pattern of dissociation. This is what we do when we don't know anything else to do. We disappear. We abandon. We check out. We simply check out. It's what we do when we don't know what else to do. And, you know, it's not at all an uncommon experience. And, of course, the antidote to this kind of sleepiness and drowsiness is because it really collapses motivation and intention, doesn't it? You know, you can hardly even get it, you know, get here. Um, so it really collapses motivation, intention, collapses aspiration. And, you know, so the, the answer is, is, you know, fairly obvious. You know, sleepiness and drowsiness creates a sensation and a landscape of flatness. Nothing's changing, nothing's moving, you know, nothing's alive. Everything feels kind of bleak. So what you do is you cultivate fluidity. Sometimes resting with the breath in one place is the last thing to do if you're in the midst of sleepiness and drowsiness. You will sink. It's actually better to move your attention through your sense doors. Going from breathing to listening to body to mind, from breathing to listening to body to mind, not in an agitated way, but not allowing, you know, cultivating fluidity, cultivating aliveness in the place where there feels no aliveness. Restlessness and worry is a big one. You know, it, it's, it's, we live in an agitated world and we surely do know what it feels like to have an agitated mind, don't we? 
The mind will never sit still, you know, never be still. It's always jumping, it's always leaning forward into the future. It's always trying to, to guarantee things. It's always trying seeking certainties. It's, it, it's always trying to pin things down, trying to arrange conditions so we feel most protected. Restlessness and worry includes the whole field, actually, of rumination. You know, what did I do wrong? Why did that happen? You know, if I'd said this, if I hadn't done this, you know, if I hadn't said, you know, th that whole chewing over what has gone by is all part of this spectrum of restlessness and worry. And, you know, it's just the mind that's not a friend, basically. The mind that's not a friend in this practice is very much concerned with cultivating the mind that is truly a friend. Now, although it's totally counterintuitive, the Buddha's antidote, in, in Buddha's teaching, the antidote to restlessness and worry is stillness. Yeah? Restlessness and worry is telling you to move, you know, do something, be, you know, agitated behavior, fix things. Counterintuitively, the answer is stillness. Stop. You know, when you read the Satipatthana, you know, we've been talking about mindfulness of breathing over this last couple of days. The mindfulness of breathing is, has a very specific direction and intention. In the discourse, it actually speaks about breathing in, calming the formations. Breathing out, calming the formations. The formations are the patterns of agitation. So I'm breathing in, calming the body. And breathing out, calming the body. And breathing in, calming everything that's agitated. And breathing out, calming everything that's agitated. We're learning to cultivate that stillness. You know, to be still in our bodies. To be, have that somatic groundedness. This, the mind will respond to that. The mind starts to respond to that somatic groundedness, that somatic stillness. It's almost like it's picking up the clues from the body, even though that stillness can feel so counterintuitive. We learn to bring the mind into the body. The last of these patterns, and, and please don't feel because it occupies the last place, that it's more lowly. It's not. It's skeptical doubt. You know, this, this is not the wholesome doubt we speak about in this teaching that, you know, leads us to question and inquire and, you know, have a genuine, honest investigation of things. This is the paralyzing doubt. You know, the, the collapse of inner, uh, the sense of collapse of any inner capacity or confidence. Hmm? The, the inability to... to to make changes, to take steps, because we so long to be sure of the outcomes before we do so. The need for reassurance. Oh, doubt does, skeptical doubt does terrible things to us in our lives. It always makes us feel lesser than others. It makes us almost do anything to get reassurance that we're okay, you know, and, and that we're acceptable. It's, it's a pretty lethal force. And, you know, again, it's, it's a spectrum from the doubt that I, you know, I just don't even know what kind of jam to have on my bread, you know, so I won't end up with any, you know, or, you know, that, that much more doubt that I, I just doubt my capacity as a human being. I doubt my capacity to awaken. I doubt my capacity to live the life I long to live. 
So it's a very big spectrum experience. And again, you can't argue with doubt. You know, you're not, you're not going to reason your way out of doubt. You'll just make lists of for and against. <laughs> Have you seen that? <laughs> Could do this, no, I should do that. No, no, no. You cannot argue, you cannot reason with doubt. You cannot argue with doubt. You cannot convince yourself of something. The only thing you actually do is you set your heart upon. Confidence and capacity are very, very close companions. And certainly what I see in and hear from eight-week programs, that the, one of the biggest things that people come out with is a sense of confidence in their own capacity to be a participant in their own healing, to, be, to have the capacity to meet their life and to have confidence in that, instead of always relying or resting completely on something else. That's a big thing, by the way, that's a big thing. So where does that grow? Well, first, confidence and capacity grows out of commitment. You know, doubt means no commitment to anything, doesn't it? In this practice, it means maybe I just commit myself to one step. Maybe I commit myself to being fully with just one breath. Maybe I commit myself to really seeing what it's like to sustain one walking period. You know, maybe I stretch myself a little bit when I meet that moment of, of, of you know, slight discomfort and I get the flinch and I want to run. And maybe I just stay one more moment. That's a commitment. And out of that commitment grows a sense of capacity, and out of a sense of capacity grows a sense of confidence. The, the word from the Pali is sada. It, it's, it, I, I don't like the translation as faith, it's confidence. But it's also about what I set my heart upon. What I set my heart upon, my attention follows. So maybe I set my heart upon just breathing this one breath, just feeling this one sensation fully, just sustaining through this one period. I set my heart upon that, and I begin to see that my confidence and sense of capacity grows with what I set my heart upon. This is a very practical, it's a very applied understanding. It's not something esoteric. The more that that capacity and confidence grows, the more does our sense of uprightness in the world grow. Not feeling so, so shaky before all the winds. Our sense of being grounded and being upright in our life. There's a tremendous strength in that sense of capacity and confidence. And it, it, it's very much cultivated through, through the beginnings of mindfulness, through the applying of mindfulness, through sustaining of the practice, and through that genuine willingness to, you know, to really know the landscape of our own hearts and minds. So seeing these patterns within ourselves is not at all a kind of, you know, a, a kind of prescription for despair or a sense of hopelessness. It's, it's a beginning of that kind of intelligence inwardly, you know, that intelligence of knowing something clearly, to know what is and to know what is possible. How we hold those both in the same hand. 
you know, to know what is, ah, you know, th this is restlessness and worry, or this is ill will, to know what is and to know what is possible, which is, is the freedom within these, seeing their arising without being gripped, without being governed. Okay, thank you for your attention. Maybe we just have a moment quietly together and then we have a walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.